Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six oh, I'd, like and I'd, to I'd say it to you, face, and I'll say it to you now. I will down Swanfield and we'll see them. Won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> this is the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen McDevitt and Ken Early, and we were all, as football fans, present at the rebirth of a great club yesterday, Manchester United. I think it shows how far their transfer policy has gone that Adnan Yanuzai, a teenager who last year was being relied upon to be their creative spark, their talisman, their leader at times anyway, has been almost totally forgotten about, by me at least, Ken. He came on as a substitute there yesterday. I was like, oh yeah, they've got Yanuzai, he's skillful too. Whatever became of him. (laughs) It turns out that uh, spending a lot of money on some very good players can really have quite an invigorating effect on, on your team. When you've got, you know, uh, players like Angel Di Maria and uh, Falcao and uh, so on, it uh, you're better off than when you don't have those players. You know this argument that Manchester United have sold their soul and gone against their best uh, their, their best practice by selling Danny Welbeck? Maybe the Yanezai case would be more instructive to watch because what, they haven't really gone against their traditions by selling Danny Welbeck if players don't perform at a high enough level for United in the Ferguson years they were eventually gotten rid of Yanazai though did as well as he could have been expected to last season even before the new signings came in this season he didn't seem to be a Van Hal favourite but if they were to eventually knock him I don't write the guy out of Manchester United yet but it looks like it could be quite tricky for him Yeah look Manchester United have always made quite a lot of money from flogging off players that have come through their academy mm. and maybe in a way uh, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting economic case. I mean, United obviously are able to attract a lot of the best young players, uh, certainly in their region recently, and, and more recently from all over. Um, and then the, the mere fact of them being Manchester United players is in, a, is in a way like a kind of designer brand on, you know what I mean? They can, they can sell those players for more than I think they would go for from another club. So, I mean, you're talking about Welbeck this time. I mean, Welbeck is, is a, has actually played a lot of first-team football, and he went for a huge price, I mean, for considering, you know, he's a he's a U-team graduate. But, I mean, you look back, um, Robbie Brady was, was two million quid, you know, 
Matthew James, remember him? He was a million. Joshua King, you remember? You remember Joshua King, right? Mm. Million million pounds they made off him. Corey Evans, half a million. Um, Wes Brown and John Shea. Well, they were they were towards the other end of their uh, careers. Darren Gibson, you know, uh, uh, Zoran Tozic. Uh, did you know that they sold Zoran Tozic for seven million pounds? Uh, I mean, without him. So you think they're name. making probably Fraser uh, Campbell disproportionate amount out of, the, out of those, even those? It's always been something that they've made money off. Right. You know, they, selling selling young players has been a part of their business. And even like, you're talking about a million, two million here and there. It sounds like nothing, but in terms of that will cover the cost of the youth system yeah, quite yeah. easily. You know, um, uh, you know, they, they they've I don't want to say money for old rope because that's because that would be unfair to the players. But they have been able to. The, it's it's. It's entirely in keeping with their tradition to sell players like uh, Cleverly and, and Welbeck and so on. We'll chat about Manchester United a little bit later on in the performance yesterday. We'll talk Champions League because Raphael Honigstein is on hand to talk about Arsenal's trip to Dortmund and Man City away to Munich. That was a, a venue where they showed some signs maybe last season of an ability to go far in this competition. Right now, though, it's time for Ken Erdies. Report on sport. So, I mean, we saw Welbeck make his debut for Arsenal against Man City and almost score an amazing goal, but not quite. Um, and I thought it was interesting last week, and it was since the, the last program we did that Louis van Gaal had this big comment about him, where he, where he said, look, the guy wasn't good enough. <laughs> you know, I mean, why, why are you all moaning at me about this? He's been here for five seasons, has never really achieved much. Goodbye. You know, is he a Rooney? Is he a Van Persie? Is he a Falcao? Well, that's the standard. So, so, so tough. I mean, next question. And, and you, you're kind of looking at that guy. Oh, I suppose it's fair enough. Ruthless, but maybe somewhat fair. Um, and he did, you know, he, he, uh, he nearly managed to score this, what would have been a fantastic goal against City. He wouldn't have been the first goal he scored against City. Probably would have been the best. Um, and it was interesting that he tried to chip. As I, and, you know... You've, you will have seen, Owen, the story about David Moyes telling Welbeck to keep it low. Keep it low. And it's it's quite interesting. We're going to talk to John Bruin about this a little bit later on, I think. Rio Ferdinand's having a big cut at David Moyes at the moment. Um, and some things you would, might feel sympathetic to him about, uh, and other things, not so much. But, I mean, for instance, one thing I would say, I, I have a bit of time for Ferdinand's claim that this was a bad thing. Moy, he's, he claims Moyes came into the dressing room and he's like, okay, that's, I want 600 passes today. We only had 400 last week. And everyone is kind of like, what? Why do we, you know, what are you talking about? 600 passes. So I suppose Moyes is looking at thinking, well, we need, we want a more passing, fluid, fluent game, you know, like Guardiola and, and that, you know, maybe these guys will get off my back if we, if we, you know, I can go to the press conference and say we had 600 passes. And 80 crosses. 81 crosses against Fulham. That's that's something that Rio Ferdinand, a very famous moment from last season, something that he brings up as an embarrassment to Manchester United. Mm. Um, but the problem with, with Moyes' approach there in that instance is that <clears throat> it's the same problem that, you know, um, if, you've, if you've watched The Wire, mm -hmm. this is the, the, the perennial problem faced by these public institutions um, of setting statistical targets as a proxy for achieving some kind of aim that you have, some kind of more abstract aim. We want to play uh, flowing football. Or, you know, we want to have a, get a certain number of A grades in this particular examination, in these national examinations, or, you know, and so on and so forth. 
that when you set these statistical targets, what you encourage people to do is do things to meet the statistical target rather than to actually achieve the abstract aim. Called uh, gaming the system or juking the stats is the phrase that they use. So in the case of Manchester United being asked to get 600 passes, it's like, well... If that's what he wants, yeah. let's just pass the ball to each other back. You know, you're not really you're thinking about the passes. You're not thinking about the outcome, which is which is what you're supposed to be. Moyes thinks that this is a way to help the person achieve the outcome, but in but in fact, that often becomes the new outcome, the new aim, and people forget about what they're supposed to be doing. You know, like if Moyes says, oh, I, want, I want to see a lot of diagonal crosses say, these guys are vulnerable. Well, in fairness, Fulham weren't vulnerable because they had on that occasion, that I, I believe the defender was 8 foot 11 inches tall. <laughs> they, had, they had this guy, Fulham's central defender was like the tallest player in the league. He was this, <laughs> I can't even remember, I think his name was Burns. Right. Uh, and he just headed the ball away all day. He was this giant in central defence. It was exactly the wrong approach. But Moyes had obviously looked at it and said, OK, I think these guys can be taken apart by diagonal balls. You know, we get the ball up and over and across them. It's going to pull their defence out of shape. They, they, they won't hold together. You know, we'll get the chances. We'll score. And, and all that happened was this awful short circuit where many of just played cross after cross without, without any apparent aim in mind. Um, there is an example of Moyes' management of Welbeck where he said, shoot low to Welbeck. I, I was thinking about this over the weekend and I was watching, you immediately thought of it when you saw Welbeck run through against Man City. And I read some of the reports the next day and they're saying, they all relate re- refer to this Moyes story. He was told to shoot low against Manuel Neuer and yet he shot high and failed. <laughs> uh, and it was kind of like, well, Welbeck, he doesn't learn. You know, when's he going to learn to shoot low? But I thought about it, when I think about Welbeck and the goals that he scored, all of his best goals are chips. Mm. He's, he chips the ball, it's just it's his thing. It's and he actually he... executed that quite well against Joe Hart. It was brilliant. Joe Hart stood up, he wasn't going to, there was no easy finish there. Mm. And he just just bounced, unfortunately, against the post rather than... Everyone uh, thought it was uh, in. Inside, you, heard yeah. the, you heard the crowd, everyone in the crowd thought it the was in. The still photos were superb as well, the whole crowd in the background and Welbeck just shocked that this ball hasn't gone in. I wouldn't, but it is, when you when there's questions about a price, that questions uh, when he divides opinion in the way that he does and the one flaw, obvious flaw, is that he doesn't score enough goals, isn't ruthless enough, you're waiting for those things. If nobody had ever yeah. heard of Danny Welbeck, they would have said, that guy's a good player, yeah. put himself about, made some great tackles as he always does and oh, wow see that chip yeah hit the lovely, post so lovely look. chip lovely chip I mean I think different players have different have, have different ways of finishing you know some some guys will hit the ball hard. Robin Van Persie someone who usually tries to hit the ball pretty hard that is probably people. a higher percentage Shearer was another one just, yeah just, sure. just hit it hard and maybe I mean I think you can I think you're. it's fair to point you make but maybe he should tone down the chips maybe he would score more you're remembering those chips because he scores them but maybe he'd score more goals if he just if he went for the down the middle maybe I mean he should score more goals it doesn't matter what kind of <laughs> goals I mean if you score on 30 chips a season you know people would be coming from all over the world to, to make movies Raul about. used to score a lot of chips Raul used Raul, to a little yeah. Ariel Ortega Dennis Bergkamp the man whose statue is outside uh, the Arsenal's ground mm-hmm. used to score a lot of what he would call stiffies uh, that was his word for chip, a stiffy. Uh, and, uh, I mean, they, they taught him that that wasn't what they called it in England. Um, but he never stopped doing it. Uh, if, he, if, he, if he could score a goal like that, he thought it was better than another, another goal. They all count, but they're not all equal in my eyes. Um, I think that David Moyes, I don't know this turned into the de- bash David Moyes months after he lost the Manchester United job, hour, but 
Why interfere with something? It seems to me the wrong thing to be trying to coach a player on. Okay, the, the, you know, if you get through one-on-one on one on the keeper, this is what I want you to do. But I'm a striker. That's my decision. That's why. That's what I'm getting paid for. I'm the guy who decides how to beat the goalkeeper. Don't try and tell me how to do that in my job in such detail. You know, if Moyes is saying, okay, Danny, you know, you've got one of their fullbacks is a little bit slow. I want you over on his side. You know, if this ball's going to be, we're going to try and get the ball in behind there and I want you chase. You know, that seems to me kind of reasonable. That's tactics. You know, that's sort of like, but you know, this, you know, if you get through, this is what you do. Their goalkeeper does this, do that. That's just control freakery. That's just messing with the players. That head. is coaching, though. But I think those are the things that should have. This guy grew up at Manchester United. Yeah. I would assume that his coaches all the way along were telling him these things. So by the time you get to the senior team, that should feel like instinct. The whole thing that we've talked well, about. Well, in, in the in the case of the the but, Neuer one, it's, it's specific to Neuer. Yeah. This because Neuer supposedly sure, yeah, a yeah, bit yeah. like Schmeichel. The thing is, if you watch that back, Neuer doesn't do that at all. In this instance, well, maybe Neuer's watched Welbeck. He's thinking. This guy likes a chip. Am I gonna rush out at him? No. If you if you watch it, Welbeck actually gets through, goes past the goes past one of the Bayern defenders who kind of goes over him really, and is through it loads of time. And Neuer, rather than rush out in the manner in which he, Welbeck's supposed to be told he does, ambles out, like quite slowly, sort of advances towards Welbeck, going, "Okay, you're move now. What are you gonna do?" It wasn't, you know, what what the the advice is that this guy rushes out, jumps. Roll it underneath him. He can't get it. Mm. You know, he's just trying to inti- he's trying to put you off, intimidate you. You've got this huge man flying towards you. Oh, no, what am I going to do? Um, but he didn't do that at all. So it just seems like a story that, you, you know, you used to kind of criticise the player. I don't think it really does. It doesn't damn Welbeck Myers. Anyway, let's not talk about Welbeck. We talked about him quite enough. And we're actually going to talk about him a little bit more later on. <sighs> but we talk about Wilshire. Did you see Jack Wilshire in this game? Yep. A game of two halves? That's the cliche that was in my head, Ken. I was trying to avoid it. I mean, the first half, just ridiculous. Could have been sent off for hitting Frank Lampard in the face. I mean, in my eyes, deliberately. I mean, he whirls his hand around to Lampard's face. That was a debatable one, but the cliche, he put a boot in on cliche at one stage, mm. which at first I actually had thought he can't even make contact when he's trying to foul somebody at the moment because it looked as though Clichy had uh, he fresh aired it as he tried to kick Clichy looking back on it he actually did make quite a considerable contact but Clichy just stayed up and bombed on which made it look even worse yeah. uh, I think when a footballer tries to foul somebody tries to put a bit of hurt on them when the player just skips away <laughs> it's, just brushes it, it off it's demoralising but second half he came out all guns lazy yeah fantastic um, I mean scored a brilliant goal set up the second goal with a looping header to Sanchez um, Arsene Wenger talking about him um, for a long time, Jack didn't kick the ball well because of his ankle. Finger, who's got some strange views on ankles. I mean, I remember him before, before Wilshire had this really bad ankle injury that which kept him out for a long time, saying the ankle is the worst part of the body to be injured in for a footballer. It just ruins everything. So it's where all your stability essentially comes from your ankle. And if it's, and if it's no good, then it's curtains for you, my friend. Then, of course, it happens to one of his best young players, and it's a case of, well... You know, people do come back from ankle injuries. He says, um, essentially, that Wilshire was, for a long time, because of his ankle problems, it had affected his whole gait. He was kind of walking on the outside or the inside of his ankles, trying to displace the weight in a in a more tolerable way. Mm. Um, and this had effectively meant that he couldn't kick the ball properly anymore. You see in training now that he kicks the ball well, Fenger says, and he works on his finishing. His shot with his ankle is clean again. He's found his power. He stays on his feet, which is the big difference. 
Um, he's more solid in this aspect. And it was. It was great play by Wilshire to go past. Um, was it Clichy who he beat on the, on the way through for the goal? And then the arrogant finish over Joe Hart. Um, he didn't keep it low, Wilshire. He no. chipped it to Chip, the near post. Chipped Joe Hart from point-blank range. Uh, well, look looked to, looked to Joe Hart as though he's going to side foot it. He's going to try and come around. With, uh, the thing that they say, open his body out. Use his left foot to stroke it past the goalkeeper into the far corner and instead just dabbed it over him with his right uh, boot. Um, Manuel Pellegrini, a little bit sour after this one, I thought, complaining about clear fouls um, in the lead-up to Arsenal's goals, which I have to say I didn't agree with at all. Uh, there were, I felt, a lot of, I don't know if you'd say clear fouls, but a lot of really brutal treatment from Vincent Kompany um, made it out to the Arsenal players. I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that either. That's the kind of it's the kind of thing comedy does when he's playing well. I mean, he kept Welbeck pretty quiet in the game. I would have thought, but it's not, you know I've seen him do that to a lot of players. I mean, I remember him doing it particularly to Wayne Rooney that match when City beat Man United in the 2012 match when they beat them one 0 Company actually scored the goal, but they to kind of go back in the lead in the title race, or was it to sort of get themselves back so that mm. they would they could win the title on goal difference? That win gave them that chance. And Rooney completely wilted that night as well. I mean, it's just difficult when you've got a 15-stone guy kicking you repeatedly in the back and kidneys every three minutes or so. <laughs> it's not its not something that a lot of players can can cope with. Um, that's company's, that's what your big centre-half is there for to a certain extent. Yeah, uh, he does it better than anyone. Um, we have uh, a couple of incidents happening at the moment also where members of teams are giving out to their own fans. John Carver... Uh, the uh, assistant coach at Newcastle under Alan Pardew uh, had a few choice words, let's say, for the away support. He, he, uh, I mean, the bluntest, the coarsest possible words, Owen. If you imagine the two coarsest words uh, and put them one after the other, one in a sort of an adjective form mm. and one in, a, one in a noun form. I think I have it, but I, but I can't say it, obviously. Yeah, look, we all we all know, and and that's the Newcastle fans. <laughs> that's never good. It really is not good. Uh, and then we also had Ben Foster at West Brom, who 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 sort of threw one in, but was angry enough, nevertheless, to take his own fans to task for uh, sarcastically applauding the substitution of Chris Brunt. Chris Brunt, a stalwart of West Brom, you know, who's been there plugging away for years and has been one of their better players in that in that time. Now being uh, now being abused by his own fans, ridiculous. Says Foster, he's been such an incredible servant. Um, it doesn't help at all. It's pathetic, to be honest. This is Foster talking about his own fans. Uh, it, it does affect you being ridiculed and abused. Um, but the situation at Newcastle. Remember, we were talking about it last week in this story in the Daily Telegraph, where Mike Ashley was said to be interested in buying Rangers and was going to sell Newcastle. He's banned the uh, Daily Telegraph from. From uh, Newcastle now, <laughs> everyone. Essentially, you get one story wrong in their eyes about Newcastle, and they ban you. That's their response. Um, another journalist is banned for suggesting Ashley would uh, Ashley would, is about to sack Pardew. Um, we don't know yet whether he, whether he is. It seems as though Pardew is still there. This is despite the four 0 defeat to Southampton on the weekend and his unbelievable unpopularity, which is reaching boiling point. And there is a website sackpardew.com which, you know, has the usual... Um, I don't think just set up a, a, a full, It's a full website. We'll go, we'll, go, we'll go full website. But here, I mean, what they've done, and I've got to say, I've got to say, I applaud the efforts here because, I mean, it's like that 
that EU ruling against Google where uh, where they introduced that right to be forgotten rule whereby people with, you know, say, for instance, um, you'd, you'd had some, some criminal record or some embarrassing story from your past, which had happened a number of years ago. But annoyingly, anytime someone Googled your name, it was one of the first things to come up, right? So you can now, in Europe... There's now a, a kind of a thing whereby you can have those results removed or after a certain period of time, okay. they sort of lapse into... I mean, they're still out there, but Google isn't going to show, show you them to You have to do a bit of digging to find them. Just fair, you know, just, just fair enough. You know, right to be forgotten is what it's called. If only football managers had something like this for their quotes, uh, because sackpardew.com has amassed an incredible collection of Alan Pardew excuses, which I urge everybody to, to read because it's absolutely brilliant. Um, it's incredible. I mean, the first one on, on the list is there's a few in here that need to understand what this game's about. The Premier League's all well and good, but a few young boys got caught out tonight by the passion and the physical side of Stevenage. <laughs> Which I love because it's such a humdrum, boring excuse right up until the moment when he drops in of Stevenage at the end. Um, it's difficult when you've got 46 points on the board. See, all, all the excuses are listed under different headings. So that one is listed under the heading 46 points. You know, uh, and then there's, you know, the 30,000 isn't a lot of fans in our stadium. You know, there's not enough fans here. The, the negativity of the fans, that's a big thing. But also the positivity of the fans is a recurring theme in Pardew's excuses. Perhaps we got wrapped up in the crowd trying to get a fourth. It's frustrating to concede. Our fans went mad. We got dragged along a little bit with that. So, you know, it's, I think the fans are taking too much. <laughs> yeah. So I love blaming the fans for his Oh, it's brilliant. But, but he bans them. He, he bans them. Sorry, before he said, he blames yeah. them from almost every, every conceivable angle. It doesn't matter what they do. They're getting brave. Maybe the fans will get banned from Newcastle ultimately. They could. Actually, fans, supporters. They, they've been the culprits on a number of games. They've lost more games for that club than anyone. Going by this list of excuses. But that's the sad thing about it. When you're there in the immediate... I mean, obviously, football is game after game, uh, week after week. I suppose the games and weeks kind of blur into each other. You know, it sometimes becomes difficult to remember. What exactly did I say last week? Oh, did I use that excuse? I'm not, and you're, when you're you're groping for an excuse in the immediate aftermath, you often come out come out with something. And the unfortunate um, reality that the internet has created for football managers is now all their excuses remain on the record. Uh, you don't have to go down to the local. Uh, you don't have to go down to the National Archive and look through the microfilm to see what Alan Pardew said after losing to Stevenage three years ago. You can just Google it and. Um, it is a remarkable document of a of the disintegration of of a reign. That West Brom game you mentioned featured one of the great non-goal celebrations of of this season. Lukaku, in this case, oh. gave the full on. I mean, it wasn't just a. Sometimes the player stands still when he scores against a former club. Sometimes there's a slight, almost hush, relaxed. Don't I don't celebrate. He was turning to nearly every corner of the stadium. I am not celebrating yeah. this goal. I will not celebrate it. As yet. though he had accidentally reversed over West Brom's cat. <laughs> and it was it was sort of, uh, it was just really, uh, you know, a, a real faux pas by, by Lukaku. I was, looking at, yeah, I was looking at Samir Nasri getting, smirking as he's getting booed by Arsenal fans. Thinking, <laughs> this guy will celebrate if he comes <laughs> out and scores a goal against I, Arsenal. You almost really wish <laughs> that that goal in the last minute, the disallowed Nasri goal, had been yeah. just to, Imagine Samir Nasri scoring a 95th minute Winner at Arsenal. Even the Arsenal fans would have to admit, you know, several years down the line, it would be one of the moments they'd remember from their football supporting lives. You could mention one other game, one of the storyline from the weekend. Well, I suppose we should talk about. Um, uh, okay, I'll do a daily. Own. What if we can mention one, um, one uh, muscle or or muscle group 
and one game. Uh, Muscle group first. Seems like a fair deal. I think it's Diego Costa's magic hamstring. Diego Costa's ama- amazing, amazing hamstrings. He keeps ripping them up, and then he keeps playing a few days later. And uh, well, in the case of the Champions League final, he only lasted about seven minutes and went off and didn't work out from there. But uh, Chelsea are having a, a bit better look because Diego Costa went and played for Spain, uh, allegedly injured his hamstring. Suddenly, there he is, scoring a hat trick for Chelsea and looking. Um, like an absolute beast, as he has in all of his appearances, scoring all kinds of goals. He thinks quicker than everybody else. Even if he doesn't think quicker, he can he can bash them out of the way and, and physically dominate them. And uh, his finishing is lethal. Seven goals in his four games mean it's the best start that anyone's ever made in the Premier League. No striker has been this prolific in his first four games. I mean, there was a statistic, Mickey Quinn and Sergio Aguero are the, are the two who managed six in four. So it's incredible to see what he's doing. And Chelsea in general are playing some frighteningly good football, running away with the title already. See, Louis van Gaal is talking about finishing the top three, which indicates which clubs he thinks he's probably not got no chance of catching. Um, and Chelsea are definitely one of those. The, other, the other game was um, was obviously Aston Villa's um, win at Liverpool. Aston Villa have six shots on target this season, 10 Premier League points. And uh, Liverpool are now the latest victims. Uh, this time, even though Villa were without Ron Flaher, who has been there, you know, well, certainly since the World Cup, looked upon as their defensive rock, this time it was Senderos holding Liverpool at bay. Holding Liverpool at bay very, very easily, it has to be said. And uh, Brendan Rodgers has a few things, had said a few things before this game, which made me wonder if maybe he had become a prisoner of his own comments. Remember we were talking about last week him criticising Roy Hodgson for... Daniel Sturridge returning injured from England duty. You know, Sturridge was overworked, overtrained, wasn't yeah. given enough recovery. Then we see Raheem Sterling. Is that Raheem Sterling, head and shoulders, their most dangerous attacking player this season, is on the bench five days after he plays for England in Basel. And we'll lose. Um, and he was talking, Rogers before the game, about how he, he had a strange quote, I have welfare for the boy. I, by which I think he meant, I have the boy's welfare at heart. Um, you know, and I'm going to look after him. I don't want him to burn out because it's important to me that he's when he hits his peak at 28 to 31 that he's playing his best football. Although at the moment, I'd have to say that. Do you think Raheem Sterling will still be playing for Liverpool when he's 28 to 31? It's a bit. The, there is a little bit of the Mike Lowens about it. Yeah, you never, you're never sure. Um, but on this occasion, maybe Rogers actually put himself under pressure by saying that. I'm sure he didn't want to leave Raheem Sterling out. Because would you leave Raheem Sterling? I mean, you know, he's one of your best players. You don't want to leave him out. He's he's 19. He played five days ago. He can play again. Come on. He's 19. But that's what Owen did. That's what managers said about Owen from the time he was 17. And ultimately, that cost him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think in that instance, they probably could have used him. They probably could have used Sterling. Um, I think a five-day rest for a 19-year-old at this point of the season. Yeah. I think they probably could have used him. But... Maybe Rogers felt that having said all these things, he couldn't very well go and do a Hodgson on it, even if the fact that Sturridge wasn't there meant that he probably should have. Instead, we had Balotelli, Lelana, and Markovic as this sort of um, uh, essentially players who'd never played together before, completely flopping. You know, there wasn't any of this um, of the movement that we saw from Liverpool against Tottenham. It was a really weak 
really weak display all round. At the end of which, Rogers is complaining about his defenders. We need to defend better. Well, in the strength of that, they they also need to attack better. But it's easier when you have your best players in the team. That's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. Shane Curran with the kick out. The forty-two-year-old goalkeeper. Curran it out from goal. Here he comes. He tucked it. He fought it. He's fifty yards out from goal. What a day for us, coming. All the mother niggas lame, and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the whoa, 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 be the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad reputation. We are joined by ESPN's John Bruin to talk about Manchester United's rebirth, as I called it earlier. John, are they contenders once again? Well, they're not too far off the the other contenders in the table apart from Chelsea um, this was a type of performance that we haven't seen from Manchester United since probably uh, two years ago during Alex Ferguson's final season Um, because if you recall um, after Christmas that year in the 2012-13 season they rather crawled over the line Um, the thing to say though one of the observations I've made or have, you know have heard is that um, remember last season uh, the song was always play like Fergie's boys. Um, now United did play a bit like Ferguson's team, um, but with very few of Ferguson's players. Um, this is like it's a total facelift, is what it looked like to me, um, and a slightly different formation as well, a diamond formation, which was one that. Ferguson didn't like particularly. Um, it was a great performance, but we do have to introduce this caveat, which is called QPR. Mm. Now, three or four weeks ago, I went to White Hart Lane and saw Spurs blow away QPR. And I thought Spurs looked like a team that could challenge for the top four. I'm not sure that's been borne out just yet, but let us offer good signs towards United and some good debuts as well. What's this though? Three at the back um, was discarded, and they uh, and they win four nil. Um, I mean, and Louis van Gaal has explained that he couldn't play with five. Smalling and Jones were injured, um, and he said he would have had to play a left-footed player as a right-sided central defender if he if he'd gone with three at the back with the with the players that were available. But I kind of think at the same time it's going to be difficult to go back to that, given that the results with that system have mostly been quite poor at least since the preseason finished. Um and, and four at the back is as everybody knows the Manchester United way. Well it's it's not only the Manchester United way, it's pretty much the way of English football, isn't it? I mean there's only Hull City have actually managed to master three at the back in English football at the moment. Um and as far as I can work out, no team playing five at the back has won the league since Arsenal in 1989. So uh, he's trying to effect a cultural change there, which I think is pretty difficult to do, especially as the majority of his defenders are British. um, So he's got a problem there. Um, And let's look at the personnel that he's got. Um, I think it's absolutely right that one of the problems that I I found when they were playing at Burnley was... Johnny Evans, who is uh, mostly left-footed, was playing as a right-back. Um, and it just didn't fit the players. Um, so maybe he's been handed something which 
is going to he can learn from. And Van Hal, remember, wasn't always a three at the back manager. In fact, he just changed it ahead of the World Cup. He's a player. He's a, a manager who uh, is you know a four three three likes the diamond as a formation. You know, he he he. he Van Hal is somebody. But I suppose the question we have to ask here is: Is he a manager? Is he a coach that changes a winning team? Um, I suppose we'll have to see when they get to Leicester next week. Yeah, what about the uh, new players in general? I mean, Di Maria was obviously fairly electric. Daily Blind, were you impressed with him? I thought Blind was excellent. Yes, um, I think it's become one of the cliches in English football about Manchester United needing a midfield, needing midfield players. I think Michael Carrick has carried. A burden there for so long, um, and it's I suppose it's quite sad for him that at the time Manchester United actually buy some decent midfielders. He's out injured. Uh, Blind seems to be able to marry both the ability to uh, he's got def- he's defensive minded, and his ability to control the tempo of a game looked to me to be well first rate. Um, but you do have to mention that he played alongside Herrera, who also. Uh, has several of those facets as well. Can also get involved in tackles, uh, an eye for goal as well as, as seen by the fact that he scored in only his second game for United. Um, I mean, it, it, it seems trite, doesn't it, to say this, but United have needed to sign midfielders for so long. It's something that's infuriated the fans for so long that each transfer window would pass without a decent midfielder being signed. They signed two, and the suggestion was that they actually wanted to sign more than that, and suddenly they look like a football team again. Yeah, um, there was huge excitement around the debut of Falcao, and you could see even when he was warming up, you know, there's this sort of mania uh, on all sides and all on the slopes of Old Trafford. Um, and on the basis of the 20 minutes or so that he played, he does look fit, and he looks as though, I mean, if he's fit, we know that Falcao was going to be an absolutely brilliant player in the Premier League. Yes, well, uh, two years ago, he was the best striker in Europe. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, the only player possibly that might have disputed those claims might have been Robin Van Persie. Um, and Falcao looked distinctly sharper than Van Persie did in, in, in the little cameo of them playing together. Um, Van Gaal is going to have to do another of these equations, isn't he? Um, someone suggested this to me that um, Van Persie and Rooney were playing sort of wide as forward, so that which gave Mata more space. And I think that was probably the best we've seen Mata play for some time. Scored a goal. Um, Falcao, you'd have to say, at his best, every team in the world would want Falcao playing at his best up front because of the amount of goals that he's going to score for you. Um, his movement was sharp. Uh, he didn't get his goal, which uh, I, I suppose I like the fact that he was so disappointed he didn't get his goal because he considers that his day is not done without a goal. So, yeah, he, he looked. At, it's the question is we, we, we've discussed this one many times. Wayne Rooney, um, though Wayne Rooney does seem to keep scoring goals. Yeah, at the heart of the Queens Park Rangers defence was Rio Ferdinand, <laughs> who was presented with an award by Bobby Charlton. That was before. strange. I thought why. Well, he's playing for the opposition. Ah, he's, he's and he's Manchester there being United faded by Bobby Robson and the crowd. Oh, all, them, all them standing around. I thought it was, it was, they do. They go in for those pre-match ceremonies quite a lot at Old Trafford. Maybe if you're if you've played that many games with them, you get to be involved. In Were them. they messing with his head a little bit, John? <laughs> I mean, was it a bit like when Ronaldo came back with Real Madrid and he got the big um, 
uh, announcement from the from the uh, the the guy over the over the Tannoy guy, and wasn't didn't they leave Ronaldo's name to last? And he yeah, came out yeah, and he was yeah. being love bombed, and they thought it would put him off, but then he scored and knocked him out. <laughs> well, I, I saw it last season actually when Didier Drogba came back to Chelsea uh, with Galatasaray and uh, actually did play as if it was a testimonial game, though. Little did we know that he was actually going to rejoin Chelsea after. But there you go. I don't think Rio Ferdinand is going to be rejoining Manchester United. Let's 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 state that. Um, he's had some interesting things to say, hasn't he? Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about because he, I know you've had a look at some of the quotes. He's got a new book uh, coming out. Um, hashtag two sides. But the Very account modern. the account of of David Moyes' time. A bit of score settling going on here from Rio. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, the strange thing is that you say score settling, but it seems that Rio Ferdinand had made his mind up before David Moyes had even done his job, had even had time to do his job or start his job. Um, there's some some very strange claims. One about how they were before the Bayern Munich game, they trained in a park, which uh, Rio Ferdinand found insulting to him. Uh, <laughs> Why did they do that, though? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean Why would they Brian is, in the park. I suppose if Brian Clough did it, then you would think it would be a you know a mark of genius or something like that. But yeah. um, David Moyes wasn't Brian Clough, was he? Yeah. Uh, but um, and then there's the chip fiasco where they were all annoyed about them not getting low fat chips. Um, just from the reading of the extracts in the, in the Sun, it, it does seem as though. Uh, Rio Ferdinand had a personal beef with David Moyes because David Moyes had to manage a player for whom his powers were fading, his contract was up. Uh, I would suggest that those um, above David Moyes in the organisation probably didn't want to continue to pay the high wages that Rio Ferdinand would be asking for. Um, and also, Ferdinand didn't do enough as a player to actually win over Moyes and uh, make sure his first choice for games like the Bayern game, which he actually says... Uh, being dropped for the buying game was probably the worst moment of his career. Um, it's interesting, as, as, as often happens with these things, the, 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 there is caveats where he says that he, he feels that uh, David Moyes is unlucky. Uh, yeah, it does seem that, Mo, uh, that Ferdinand and his colleagues actually didn't give the manager much chance, so therefore how can he be unlucky? Yeah. He, was, he was the victim of, uh, of, of their behaviour at times. Um Oil and water is the is the uh, comparison made, which reminded me a bit of Spinal Tap, uh, Fire and Ice. Um, he, yeah, uh, a, a strange there, read. Is there um, maybe is there maybe in that the chip story that you mentioned? I mean, the, for anyone who hasn't seen this, um, essentially, Ray Ferdinand says that the players were annoyed that Moyes said they couldn't have. I didn't realize until you said it. It was low fat chips. Uh, Moyes said no chips. He, he said no chips. Um, but the interesting part of it, I think, was uh, when Ferdinand says after Moyes gone, about twenty minutes after he'd gone, we're sitting there on the on the bike, and one of us says, "We got to get on the gigsy. <laughs> we got to get on the gigsy. Get him to get our chips back." Um, and, <laughs> and does that suggest that Manchester United maybe had a had a lucky escape there? If if Ryan Giggs had in fact been the manager, twenty minutes after Moyes left, Rio Ferdinand says. The players are already planning to impose some new conditions on on the new manager Ryan Giggs. That maybe it's just as well he didn't actually get the top job. Well, I don't know how well you know Manchester, Ken, but chips are very popular there. So you know, it, 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 
are, are we suggesting that chips were the were the were the key to progress to progress and success? Well, just the the idea that um, that immediately he was saying, oh, you know, Giggsy will uh, Giggsy will put the chips back on the menu, and and I, I don't know if if the demands w- from the players would have stopped. Necessarily, it is chips. a classic problem that managers have who've played with all the guys. Maybe, maybe Giggs will be the Man United manager, but he, he might need a few years break so that the guys he ends up managing aren't, aren't all the guys that he played with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I, I can't see Van Hal. Um, I don't know his views on chips, but I can't see him uh, uh, being allowed to. to well, I, I can't see that. Say the players going to Ryan Giggs and saying, "Right, we want chips back." That Van Hal is going to listen to him. No. Um, which shows you why David. I mean, it, it's the fact. It's strange that the fact that this is able to come out as some element of dispute. It doesn't really hold any credence to me. Mm. Um, you know, football managers have various ideas about nutrition, um, about how players should behave, and it just seems that because of David Moyes' lack of success as a manager before, or perceived lack of success. Um, certain players weren't going to give him the chance to become the Manchester United manager, so that you know, they just uh, you know, they look down on him, which really suggests that uh, he doesn't speak well of them. Um, mm. But it perhaps doesn't speak well of the appointment in the first place either. There was a little bit of spinning going on, maybe from the other side. Although I, I'd like to get your interpretation of this. Just this story that came out a little while ago about Welbeck, and this was. Um, to do with his uh, his his famous uh, miss against Bayern Munich, um, uh, in which it, it later transpired, and were quite recently, I mean, in the last couple of weeks, remember that match happened in March, but that David Moyes and his scouting team, having diligently assessed the strengths and weaknesses of Bayern Munich, reckoned that Manuel Neuer had a tendency to sort of leap into the air a little bit when he was trying to charge a striker, and therefore it would be quite easy potentially to roll the ball underneath him and you should shoot low. And this is what Welbeck was told. And of course he didn't. He tried to chip it, um, which is what Welbeck usually tries to do um, when he's one-on-one. But I wondered, where did that uh, story come from? Is that an example of David Moyes setting some things straight? Can we maybe expect more of that? Or was that something you might have heard from inside the current club where they were trying to say, well, you know, we we have sold Danny Welbeck, but there were we did have our reasons. Yeah, well, I think the thing with the Welbeck thing is I, I can't recall a player being sold and there have been so many different opinions on it. I mean, we've had the Gary Neville and the, the Paul Scholes and Eric Harrison element, which is, you know, United are betraying their ideals by selling Danny Welbeck, which is quite strange. Um, and we saw at the weekend he did another chip, didn't he, and didn't score. Um I suppose one thing, interesting point about the, the, this Ferdinand book is that David Moyes surely has a right of reply to all this, mm. um, yet has kept his own counsel. Now, I know that uh, ahead of the World Cup, uh, he met with some journalists and uh, some of those stories from the discussions they had will have appeared over the, in the time in between. Um, I think the, th- the thing is with Welbeck, um, as he actually demonstrated on Saturday, uh, Sunday, sorry, and as Louis van Gaal said last week, um, if you've got a choice between Van Persie, Rooney, Falcao and Danny Welbeck, he's pretty far down the list, isn't he? And um, whichever spin you put on it, um, he hadn't actually done enough as a Manchester United striker, even on those matches when he was played as a central striker, 
to remain at the club if those other options were open to the manager. Yeah. All right, John, we'll leave it there. Thanks a million. Cheers. Hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, no, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Leon's book sounds pretty interesting, Ken. Going by the viewpoints. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, the ghostwriter is David Winner. Oh, yeah. Who did the uh, Dennis Bergkamp uh, book last year. Brilliant Orange before that. Brilliant Orange before that. So um, they've certainly got a good writer involved with it. I'm not sure what the what the project is, or, or what the project, what the, what the kind of format, what the format is. I mean, the Bergkamp one was an interesting one. It was kind of, it was, it, it was almost uh, written in the form of a conversation between Bergkamp and various interlocutors, one of whom was Winner. Um, there was a, a couple of Dutch journalists involved as well. Um, the real one seems to be a more um, traditional type of footballer tells his story in the first person. I'm not sure exactly, but mm. I'm sure David Lerner's done a good job. Raphael Honigstein joins us, Raphael, to talk about uh, the couple of Anglo-German games, Arsenal away to Dortmund tomorrow and Manchester City away to Bayern on Wednesday in the Champions League. And I just ask you about Dortmund, first of all. We're, we're always quite impressed by how... How they don't start feeling down about the situation in Germany there. In particular, Jurgen Klopp seems effervescent as always, despite the fact that their best players end up going to Bayern Munich. Do they feel pretty good about things again this year? They do. Um, the fact that Shinji Kagawa came back from Man United put a real uh, mood of euphoria and optimism back into the squad after the injury to Marco Royce had dampened spirits somewhat over the uh, international break. Um, life is pretty good. They are very happy with the way they're going. I think they have a sense of, sense of uh, vulnerability as far as Bayern are concerned and feel that they maybe might be able to win another championship or at the very least continue what they're doing, which is to qualify for the Champions League and keep growing as a club and get to the point where it's going to be more and more difficult for the other teams to, to prize their best players away from them. It really comes down to the players, though, doesn't it? I mean, do you get the sense that the German players... Uh, I mean, I'd say, you know, in my in my estimation, maybe Marco Royce and, and Matt Hummels are the big German stars on that Dortmund side, that part of them would still see a move to Bayern Munich as effectively a kind of a promotion. Uh, well, Matt Hummels certainly wouldn't. Uh, I think with his personal history going from Bayern, where he was unwanted by a variety of coaches and... Uh, being named captain of Dortmund, he really has bought into this whole, um, into being at Dortmund, and he, I think, would be extremely hard to shift. Certainly not down to Bayern. If he were to go, I'm sure we'll we'll see him somewhere else. Um, with Royce, it's a similar case. Um, I think you'll see Bayern's statement of the last few weeks really voicing their frustration that they haven't been able to make any progress. Um, he's already turned them down once, of course, when he moved from Gladbach. And my information or the information that's being out, put out there indicates that he's turned them down a second time. So while I think you're right in the sense that Bayern are still bigger and can guarantee more trophies and ultimately more money to every player in Germany, um, I think Dortmund are coming to the level where the players feel that they can have just as fulfilling a career in many other aspects as Bayern would 
would be able to give to them. So I still, I, I think that slowly but surely they're establishing themselves as, as a force that can be seen as as just as desirable for, for other players to go to as, as Bayern have been over the last 20, 30 years. You said the fans are euphoric about Kagawa coming back. This is a guy that Jurgen Klopp once described as one of the best players in the world. That was never obvious, particularly at Manchester United, though. No, it's been a big disappointment. I really was surprised that he hasn't been able, uh, that he wasn't able to make himself a, a more of a fixture, more of a regular at United. Uh, a few coaches have failed to get the best out of him. Um, it's especially surprising because his game is all about pace and, and being very direct. And you think he's the perfect player for the Premier League. Um, hard to say from the outside looking in what the real problem was, but the indications, the early indications from Dortmund are that he's already um, in that one game has looked much closer to the play that Man United have uh, thought they had bought than to the one that they actually saw over the last two years. And, of course, Michael Royce not being available now helps his case because he's become an automatic starter in his absence. And with uh, the likes of Mkhitaryan playing really well around him and Aubameyang, uh, Dortmund look very potent again. I think where they might be coming a little bit short in Europe this season is uh, the absence of Lewandowski. I think it's very, very tough for them to replace him would, would have been tough for any club in the world, but especially Dortmund because their whole game was geared towards having that one player up front who holds up the game and makes these runs and, and is the first line of defence and nobody did that better than Lewandowski. So I think they might struggle a little bit to have the same cutting edge that they've had over the last couple of years. Which brings us on, I suppose, I think to the other game, a game which I think you're going to, Rafael Spiron, against Manchester City. Lewandowski has already um, scored a couple of goals for Bayern, um, looking good for them. But I wonder what, uh, you know, I mean, how's he fitting into the team in, in the tactical sense? I mean, when we look at uh, Pep Guardiola's teams, um, Mario Mandzukic, the centre-forward last season, ended up falling out with him. There may be a sense in which the the games the game that his team tends to play sort of militates a little bit against centre forwards of of Lewandowski's type. So, um, what what kind of use is Guardiola making of Lewandowski? Well, I think that's a really um, pertinent question. Um, orthodox centre forwards have never really fared well under Guardiola, but I think. Mandzukic doesn't quite fit a pattern in a sense. I think that the fallout was much more personal rather than tactical. I mean, he did play in the big games. Unfortunately, he didn't perform for Bayern, and that was one of the reasons why they ultimately fell short last season. Uh, they expect Lewandowski to be very different, to be hungry, um, to work harder for the team. And I think it gives Bayern another option. They've, they've tried playing... Uh, forced nine strikers last season and the season before, to a certain extent, with Müller and Götze. And now Lewandowski, they've got, they've got somebody who's a bit more focused when it comes to occupying the striking positions. I think that there is no problem integrating him into a Bayern team because he's just as good as holding up in holding up the ball and, and playing with the ball than, than most of the other players are. Uh, it's just that I think he's more of a striker in, in a sense when it comes to finishing. So... He's an upgrade on what they've had before. I don't think tactically it's a big problem. I think Guardiola is a lot more flexible in that respect than people give him credit for sometimes. The, uh, Jerome Boateng said that Bayern's best performance last season was against City, the away win, uh, the 3-1 win, but you could 
certainly argue that City's, I'm almost certain, their best performance in Europe uh, in the last few years was against Bayern in the away game, the 3-2 win in Munich. Would Bayern Munich regard City as a dangerous opponent? They do. Um, they certainly, uh, I think, all felt that a 3-1 set a new benchmark, which ultimately they couldn't live up to throughout the rest of the season. Uh, but it, it gave an indication of just how well Bayern could play under Guardiola. Unfortunately, it came a little bit too early and couldn't be sustained. I don't think we'll see any similar type of dominance this time around simply because there are too many injuries. There hasn't really been a constant uh, flow of football coming out of this team because it's been reshuffled every single time, sometimes two or three times during a single game because of injuries, as happened again against Stuttgart. Um, the 3-2 defeat at home was seen as really Bayern switching off after the 2-0 lead. Uh, that was a game they uh, didn't have to win. Uh, they could even lose it uh, with one goal difference uh, to top the group. So there was just a lack of a lack of concentration, lack of focus creeping in. But I, I do think that they take City very seriously and reading between the lines of what the players have been saying, I think especially in this group, they feel that they can't really afford to have any slip-ups because Roma are a dangerous third team in there. And I think that makes this game all the more important because if if Bayern don't win, then I think they'll feel a, a bit more under pressure than they have in recent years. And with a team not being quite stable and quite consistent, I think it could develop into a dangerous situation. Yeah. You had an interview with Thomas Miller um, over the last couple of days, Raphael, in which he mentioned uh, this whole the way in which people tend to interpret any post-World Cup performances in light of the World Cup. Uh, obviously, the German players have all gone and won the World Cup now, and people are looking to see how it affects their form, even though it may not be connected in any way. I wonder, though, how do you think it's affected the manager, Pep Guardiola, because it did afford him the chance to really step away from the limelight for a couple of months and maybe uh, relax a little bit, because it seemed to me that towards the end of last season, a season, remember, in which his team had won the double, he was a strangely embattled figure for a manager who, on the face of it, had been incredibly successful. He seemed a little tense. Is, is he still? Um, well, I think the Champions League is... is really the only um, clue um, to where he is and where he will be. That's really where he'll he'll be judged for buying. I think now good enough to win the championship almost irrespective of, of his um, exact ideas or uh, attitude towards it. But in the Champions League it ended with a 4-0 defeat at home to Real Madrid which put a lot of things into perspective and, and created a lot of pressure on him and he himself felt that he'd let himself down by by following the players, by listening to them too much ahead of the second leg. There's a fascinating book that's uh, about to come out by Marty Peranao, a Catalan journalist who spent the whole season at Bayern with him and really detailed the thinking uh, from Guardiola, tactical thinking about every single big game. And um, you could see that just how frustrated and, and hurt he was from getting knocked out by Real Madrid in this fashion. Uh, the club have really rallied around him, despite some public criticism, despite some some doubt from the media, and that ultimately has meant that his position hasn't really changed. It's just as safe as it as it has been last season. Um, but Bayern, and this is something that Müller also said, are very well aware that the Champions League is effectively two competitions. Uh, the first one is getting out of the group, winning it if you can. Then everything starts again in February, March, and. 
we saw last season that what you do in the group stage unfortunately bears very little has very little relevance when it then gets to the knockout stages and Bayern need to keep that freshness and just a final thought maybe this time the dynamic will be different they'll take a little bit longer in the season to get into their stride but maybe they can maintain the rhythm uh, much longer as a pros as a, a consequence, and that might actually help them. How did you find Muller as uh, an interviewee, Raphael? I, I understand he's not your typical celebrity footballer. No, he isn't. He uh, he's the most, un- most unassuming World Cup winner I think you're ever likely to meet, and uh, he has this really fine uh, trade in, in Bavarian humour, which hardly translates into German, let alone English, <laughs> <laughs> very well. Uh, it's just great to talk to him. Um, and he always comes comes up with slightly unique angles and interpretations on of things. Mm. But I think the the take home thing is that there is a real confidence at Bayern that if they have all the big players on the pitch, they are still one of the best teams. And I think the whole tactical debate is almost not that important. You feel to the players. He, he was saying, yeah, you know, we we might do. Might try a few things. Guardiola wants us to be a bit more predictable. He's tried three at the back, but it doesn't really matter all that much to us, play, us as players. Uh, we just have to perform. We just have to get out there. And if we've got the big guys out there, then we're very, very hard to stop. And that's, that's I guess, is true. I think we sometimes, from looking outside in, we overinterpret the the role of a coach and the, the role of tactics a little bit. It is uh, interesting, I think, uh, Raphael, that, that you uh, say that Miller himself is a kind of easy or a laid-back character when on the field he um, struts around in quite an arrogant manner and appears to be one of the most unpleasant opponents in a competitive sense that anybody could ever um, hope to face. Oh, I think that's a bit harsh. I think... Um, I don't know what do you mean by arrogance. I think he is very honest in, in his in his football. Um, he's clever, of course. He he knows what to do. He knows how to sometimes buy a foul, buy a penalty. He does all these things very well. It's it's sort of a, well. That's not that's hardly honest if he's <laughs> buying penalties. Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I mean, honest <laughs> in the sense that there is nothing. Um, there is nothing. I should say. Um, I'm sure his taxes are all in order. His taxes hopefully are in order. Um, honest in the sense that I think he will not hurt you. Um, I mean, he's not cynical in, in my view. He's not somebody who's going to go all the way to get a reaction from you. He's not a Diego Costa, if you will. Um, I think he still has some some lines that he will not cross. And honest in the sense that he is performing for the team in, in a way that's very selfless and one of the things that he said to me, which I thought was quite interesting, which I didn't have space to put in the uh, in the interview, said that um, he feels now that he's become a better player because he can do more for the team. He used to be more individualistic, tried things, and then two out of ten times it might might come off, and then the, and then people would say, "Oh, you know, he's done something wonderful," but he would have actually have lost the ball eight times in the process. Now he's a bit more calculated keeps the ball better and ultimately more of a team player. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw it, but um, he was asked after the final by a Colombian journalist what he feels about missing out on the golden boot. And he answered in Bavarian um, saying um, that he really couldn't, couldn't give a monkeys. And, you know, they were champions. And it's the last thing 
uh, he was thinking about. And it was said in jest, and uh, I'm sure that at some level deep down he was, maybe uh, would have would have liked to, of course, um, def- defend that title. But I think it gave you great insight. He's not the type of player who's really that concerned with individual critique, individual prices. He wants to win things for his team. Well, people can read that interview in The Guardian. Listen, Raphael, great to talk to you. Thanks a mil. Pleasure. Yeah, Muller does... He, he does strike you as a guy who can... He's certainly gotten Pepe's nerves, Ken, mm. uh, during the World Cup. But, a lot of people uh, do. Uh, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, but quite a relaxed character off the field by the sounds of things. Breeds horses. Yes, apparently himself and his, and his wife... Uh, Horsey hangs out a lot in his hangs out a lot in his farm. I mean, I called him arrogant there. I think what uh, Rafa made the point. He's you know he's an honest player, but because I think there's a perception, arrogance is like is like a false um, thing. You know, to be arrogant. I think this is it's it's Uli Hesse. I think the German football historian um, makes this point. People are, people would say German teams are arrogant, but that's not it. That's exactly the opposite of what we are because. No German crowd will put up for a second with what they see as a kind of a complacency or a refusal to really give everything from uh, from players. Uh, whereas the, the idea I think they have of arrogance is like this a guy who's strutting around thinking he's great and not really not really producing the goods to match up to his own uh, you know bloated. Can you not be both? I'm thinking of Lothar Matthäus, yeah. a great player, arrogant player. Definitely, surely, arrogant. surely you can be both. I don't think by definition. Being as good as you think you are makes you, you know, rules out the idea that you might also be arrogant. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Muller. It's the way he kind of struts around. He's got a very superior bearing to to the. He's, other he's a mouthy. He's a mouthy fan. At the he's best he's very right, mouthy. He's very annoying. I mean, all of these, all of this is part of the game, and it's part of what makes him such a good player. That's pretty much it from us. But do have a listen to our first show of the week. We put it out there. That's our all sports show featuring Tony Kelly, last year's hurler of the year, talking about the end of his under twenty one career, uh, which in which he signed off with a man of the match performance, captaining his team to a third All-Ireland title in a row. Dan Martin, who finished in the top 10 in the Vuelta España, and we talked to Scottish Independence. You can check out our new website, secondcaptains.com, and follow us on Twitter, at Second Captains. Cheers for listening today. Hope you enjoyed it, as I mentioned. Ken, thank you. Thank you too, Owen. And we'll chat to you soon. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.